the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing in our coverage of a book that I authored recently called Homecoming. And the byline under that is how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And um, we've been discussing uh, the chapter in that book called The Requirements of Journeys. We started this uh, last week, and um, you may want to check out the podcast on KPRZ, or you can go to uh, my uh, webpage under the media section and uh, go to the podcast from last week, which uh, basically explained that um, the concept of the Judeo-Christian walk being a journey can be seen, um, we talked about using the reference to Deuteronomy chapter 8 um, as the Hebrew children of God, Father God, were coming out of a environment of slavery, of bondage, uh, Pharaoh as an archetype or as a prototype, looked as he was basically the symbol of satanic um, tyranny over our lives uh, prior to being delivered or rescued, as we see in the Jewish feast of Passover. And of course, we just celebrated Passover, um, which fell on the same week this year, this calendar year, uh, as Easter. And when I was a fairly young Christian. I was uh, in contact with um, a local church in Poway called uh, Mount Zion Fellowship, and um, the pastor there was a prolific author and teacher. And um, one of his themes, if you will, um, was to compare and contrast the experiences with the Hebrew people um, using the what they call the four great types of redemption, types being a reference to symbols or um, a, uh, a blueprint, if you will, of God's design, God's program for restoration of our relationship to him and also uh, restoration of our inheritance back to us. In other words, it was a process of regaining everything that had been lost um, in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So I would encourage you to go back and and listen to some of the earlier shows. But um, I would also 
encourage you to go over to a website called WOR.org. And the WOR stands for Word of Righteousness. Um, Pastor Thompson um, just recently passed away, 97 years old. He was a veteran uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, World War II era, and um, amazing man, very talented man, um, musician out of the Juilliard uh, Academy of Music, uh, could play music with, without even being, not having the music in front of him. He could play it without reading it. Um, very accomplished um, in education. He was a fifth grade teacher for many years, became a principal, had a doctorate in education, um, but uh, also went to Bible school. And um, his passion was um, reflected in his um, teachings on the scripture. But he, he, was, a, he was a digger. He, he dug deep, and he wanted to uh, really understand what was the program of the, of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and how did it work? Uh, what were the goals? What were the uh, destinations, if you will? What were the points of, of all of this study, et cetera? And um, one of the courses that he taught and wrote a lot of books on, by the way, his total, I think, came to about um, the final tally was something around 1,200 books and pamphlets during his um, religious career as a pastor and teacher. And um, anyway, one of his themes was um, dealing with what was the significance of the Old Testament as far as giving us outlines and giving us, um, if you will, trying to think of a, of a good, probably an outline, probably a blueprint um, as to a trajectory, a destination that God was going to be taking us on um, as we came to know him, uh, experience initial salvation. But the question was, after initial salvation, what? What then? What next? Um, one of his um, repeated themes was, what are we saved to as Christians? What are we saved from as Christians? What are we saved for as Christians? And he, he really made you think. He really made you dig into the scripture. And um, the course that he taught, I think it was one of the first ones I ever took, was um, called The Four Great Types of Redemption. And it dealt with this, that the Bible is actually, especially in the Jewish Testament, the Old Testament, is a layout of roadmaps, and the roadmaps, um, he used different groupings, and the, one of the groupings was the seven Levitical feasts um, uh, out of Leviticus chapter 23, um, also the five furnishings of the tabernacle of Moses that was out of uh, Exodus 25 through Exodus 40, which is 15 chapters of the whole book of Exodus, talking about the significance, the symbolism and the fulfillment of the symbolism of the construction uh, that went into the uh, building of the Tabernacle of Moses, um, and especially focusing on the five furnishings of the Tabernacle of Moses. Uh, I'm sorry, what am I saying? Seven, the seven furnishings of the Tabernacle of Moses. So you have the seven feasts of the Lord, Levitical feasts. You have the seven furnishings of the Tabernacle of Moses. And then uh, taking a look at the different aspects of the journey of the Hebrew children from leaving Egypt and heading out for Canaan, the promised land. 
um, and looking at that in also a group of seven s- steps or seven phases, if you will. And then the last one was the seven days of creation. And so when I wrote this second chapter, The Requirements of Journeys, in the book The Homecoming, um, I actually ask a question, have you ever heard it said that life is a journey? Our life here on earth is a journey. And we talked briefly last week about, well, is, is the goal of this journey a where or a what or a who? And we pretty much concluded that the, uh, the journey is mainly about a, attaining a goal of relationship with a who, which was Father God, uh, through this, his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, which is his uh, Hebrew name, and uh, through the son and by the Holy Spirit. And, uh, but also, uh, it's also aware in the sense of um, what was our original uh, inheritance in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, and what did we lose in the fall? So we lost our relationship with our father in Genesis chapter 3, and we also lost our inheritance of having dominion over the earth. And um, if you look at the Bible as a roadmap story, um, you start to get into the fact that this is a, a Hebrew context book. If we don't understand the context of the book we're reading and we're trying to overlay an outside context that was not intended by the original authors, most the vast majority of whom were Hebrews. There was 40 authors in 66 books of the Bible, 39 of whom were uh, Hebrew. And we have to understand that they had a certain perspective, and they were getting inspired by the Holy Spirit to put this, um, this Holy Bible together. And um, most of the authors of the New Testament which we don't really think about much, but most of the authors, with the exception of maybe the Apostle Luke being a uh, Gentile, uh, most by, by far most of the authors of the New Testament were also Hebrew. So it's not just a matter of, of we don't see the connection between the journey aspect of a beginning, a middle point, and an ending in the Jewish Testament, how things were foundationally established in the Jewish Testament through the prophets, the apostles, the the fathers, the patriarchal fathers, the covenants, and what connection all of those experiences, those Hebrew experiences had in the fulfillment of, of all of the projections and the prophecies that were to take place in the New Testament, we are really going to get a dissected, um, incomplete understanding of what the Scripture is all about. So we said last couple of shows um, that basically the Bible is a Hebrew circular um, experience. It's a family reunion story of what we had and what we lost and then what we were to be regaining, which was 
uh, comparable to Luke chapter 15, where the prodigal son uh, comes back to his father and regains his inheritance after an apostasy, a personal apostrophe, when he leaves um, his identity, he leaves the provision that comes with that family, and he leaves his protection. And the world teaches him a bitter, a hard lesson, so hard that he returned, and the father welcomed him back in. So every one of us have a certain number of days on this earth. We are on borrowed time. And how we spend that time, the scripture tells us we are to redeem the time. That's what Paul writes. And because we can't get it back. And if we're going to set out on a journey, um, we'd better figure out what's the point, what's the destination, and what's the purpose of this journey. So I write there on page 17, the Bible is a roadmap story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. It also has signposts. It has directions. It has indicators along the way. And then I get into it's not necessarily a linear uh, journey. Some could biblically argue that the journey is a circular, cyclical one, depending on which roadmap the perspective a traveler has. And, uh, but I do say how the journey ends is largely up to us. So um, there are lots of parables that Jesus taught in the New Testament, in the four Gospels. And those parables uh, are really not addressed to those who are, have not experienced the initial salvation experience. Most of those are to people who already have some type of beginning relationship with God. And um, the eternal consequences of, of us as individuals pursuing our own goals, our own ideas, our own targets, if you will, independent and separated from God's goals, um, can't, that damage can't not be done with a request for, I want another shot at this, I want a do-over. And um, we just celebrated Passover. And um, Passover, through the celebration of the slaying of the unblemished lamb um, and then putting the blood on the Hebrew homes in the area of Goshen, uh, so that when the angel of death passed over that area of Egypt, um, all of the Hebrews who had followed the instructions of how the blood of the lamb spread on the doorposts of their homes would spare them, save them, deliver them from death. Um, that symbolism is extremely important. But what I want to point out is after Passover, okay, the Hebrew children were saved. They didn't experience the judgment and the death that fell on the Egyptian families where they lost their, on their 10th plague, they lost their uh, firstborn in every family. But their journey didn't begin and end with Passover. Passover was a beginning point for their journey. And we talked about last week, the point of the journey, read Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm not going to go over it again, but read it as to what the father's idea was, that they had been separated relationally from him for over 400 years. And it was time to get reacquainted. They had been living in a pagan, demonic culture overseen by a, by a cruel uh, tyrant in the form of Pharaoh. 
And it was time to leave and get out, depart from that culture of which they had been attached to for hundreds of years. And the purpose of the father taking them on this journey was so they could get reacquainted as their divine father was going to put on display for the purpose of his Hebrew children to put on display who he was when he took them to a difficult place called the Sinai Desert and a place where they could not grow their own food. They could not depend on the water resource of the Nile River uh, for farming. The place where um, with the, the work of their own hands, they were not being going to be able to be independent. In fact, they had to learn dependency on their divine father for everything, for food, for water, for their health, for their sustenance, for their protection, for their provision, and in the process, hopefully, for their identity being solidified, that they were children of a very special called-out family. And that Father God, in his capacity as Father, would provide and protect and give over their, make clear their identity to them as members of the household of God, as members of the nation of Israel. So God knew exactly what he was doing when he was taking them out into these uh, areas of challenge. And the Hebrews had decisions to make all the way across. Were they going to grumble? Were they going to complain? Or were they going to trust? And were they going to depend? And were they going to have faith in God? And there's a lot of stories, a lot of lessons we can learn in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 in the New Testament. They lay out in 13 verses uh, all the lessons that we should learn on the mistakes that those Hebrew children made um, along the way of that journey. And um, so much so that that first generation, most of them, um, because they did not... um, learn their lessons. They did not want to obey a God who wanted to protect them. They wanted to go um, their own way and do their own ideas. Um, Basically, that first generation was pretty much wiped out with very few exceptions. And I think in, was that judgment, was that condemnation? Well, yes, obviously it was. But I think it's more than that. It's more of a cause and effect lesson to say, here's how you live and prosper. And that's by following the guidelines of a loving father who cares about you deeply. Because he knows that if you break away from him, if you separate yourself from him, you are running the hazard and the risks of grave, grave harm, eventually leading to death. And so a lot of people may read the um, accounts of the Hebrews in the desert as God being very harsh, very judgmental, very uh, strict. Um, or you can, you can take a look at it from another way to say what, his, what were his motivations. And his motivations were to basically say, look, if you listen to me, if you pay attention, these rules are there not to make your life difficult or challenging, 
or overbearing or overwhelming. The, the guidelines that I'm setting out for you in the form of commandments or rules uh, or the covenants are there so that you can live and prosper and enjoy all the things that were going to be part and parcel of becoming part of this Hebrew nation of children, of called out people to basically be the light to the rest of the world, to the people of the nations, the goyim, if you will. And unfortunately, um, a lot of them in that first wave as they left uh, Egypt uh, did not learn those lessons. They had to learn the hard way. And um, there were subsequent generations that did pay attention to um, the cause and effect impact of what they were able to observe. And they and many of them changed. We see new leadership coming where after Moses is told he can't go across over into the into the uh, new land of Canaan that the leadership changed. And we had Joshua now coming as a uh, man of war and getting very serious about trusting God and saying, you know what, his ways mean life. His directions mean health and safety and prosperity. So let's go back to the departure on this journey that the Hebrews were leaving Egypt it was very symbolic of rejecting a, a pagan demonic culture and their ways uh, in which they were uh, ensla- to which to which they were enslaved they were in bondage to and um, you can see the symbolism here that um, when Zacharias for example uh, finally gets an opportunity after uh, the curse is removed from his tongue at the christening of John the Baptist. And he says in Luke chapter 1, actually the Holy Spirit said this through him, it identified why God wants to bring us out of Egypt, or if you will, the world system. And um, listen to this language. It's very interesting here. Okay. We have to go towards the end. And let's see if we're... Oh, yes, here it is. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. I don't know if I'll be able to get through all of this before the break. I won't get through this. So uh, let me just set it up for the next side, overside of the break. Um, Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. Uh, For he has visited and redeemed his people. And we talked about what redemption meant last year, buying something back that you earlier lost. All right, in verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And the, well, there's the sign. I'm going to have to break here. Let's pick it up on the other side of the break at uh, verse 69 of Luke chapter 1 with Zacharias' uh, prophetical utterance of why journeys 
have to be started. See you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back. We are talking about the requirements of journeys in the Judeo-Christian experience and why journeys would be required and what are the points of journeys. And what we have, uh, do a real brief summary, it's to get to know Father God again and to have Father test our hearts to see what our motivations are. Um, in this process of reacquaintance to getting to know him after we have been isolated and separated from him. And we talked about the Hebrews being uh, away from Father God for 430 years. And um, we left off with, I want to actually also read this from the Complete Jewish Bible by David Stearns. Go back to... um, Verse 68 of Luke chapter 1, this is Zacharias at the christening of John the Baptist. It really defines well how this gospel of the kingdom uh, really is set up. And so he says, the Holy Spirit is um, basically has just filled up Zacharias. And he spoke this prophecy. This is verse 68 of Luke chapter 1. Praise be Adonai, the God of Israel, because he has visited and made a ransom to liberate his people. Okay? By raising up for us a mighty deliverer. That's, of course, talking about the Messiah, Messiah Jesus, who is a descendant of his servant David. It is just as he has spoken through the mouth of the prophets from the very beginning that we should be delivered from our enemies and from the power of all who hate us. So let's just stop real briefly there. The Hebrews had been enslaved by the um, Pharaoh in Egypt for literally hundreds of years, a series of Pharaohs, if you will, that did not have their best interests at hand. The, the Hebrews were beginning to um, to grow in number and be prosperous, and the Egyptians felt threatened. And so Pharaoh said, it's time to clamp down and basically put them in bondage. But you have to ask yourself as we're reading this, is, is there a, a comp- comparable model of what you can use to describe what's going on in Egypt in earthly reality versus what's going on at the same time, simultaneously in the spiritual reality where Satan is really represented through the presence of a tyrant, a cruel taskmaster like Pharaoh imposing slavery on the Hebrew people. So, isn't it interesting that in verse 70 of the Complete Jewish Bible, it says, um, just as he has spoken through the mouth of the prophets from the very beginning, that we should be delivered from our enemies and from the power of all who hate us. I'm just going to take a little segue here, but 
it's interesting when uh, King Agrippa, in I think it's Acts 26, asks Paul, the apostle, why is it that he uh, became a believer in this Messiah, Jesus? And basically, he said to, um, to King Agrippa, my assignment, this is Paul talking to the king now, he says, my assignment was to um, basically bring light to the Gentiles, bring them out of darkness, but he said, and bring them from the power of Satan to God. Okay. So compare that New Testament reference that Paul the Apostle is explaining to King Agrippa because he asked the question. And in essence, the same thing is happening here. He has sent us a deliverer that we should be delivered from our enemies and from the power of all who hate us. Well, who hates us? Pharaoh hated the Hebrews. Satan hates the children of God, and we need deliverance from the power of Satan over our lives. Romans 6 is very clear about this. We're in bondage through the power of sin over our lives. And the reason Jesus came, 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might do away, listen, to the works of of the devil. So you see this in typology or symbolism of what was going on with the beginning of a journey by the Hebrews leaving the bondage, their pretty desperate state of being in slavery to Pharaoh. Well, we as new believers, right before we come to be new believers, we are in bondage to a spiritual pharaoh called the adversary. In Hebrew, it's ha-satan. Ha means the, satan means adversary. Better known as Satan. Better known as the devil. Lucifer. He has the power of sin in and over us. And we need to be delivered from our enemy, him. Okay? Now go on to verse 72. All this has happened so that he might show the mercy promised to our fathers. I'm talking about God now, why why, um, God is sending this deliverer, this Messiah. That he would remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore before Abraham, our father, to grant that we, freed from our enemies, now notice, here comes freedom again, would serve him without fear, Notice in this, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Yes, this is the New Testament. That, <laughs> let me read it again. That to grant us that we freed from our enemies, our spiritual enemies, would serve him, God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I don't think this is preached much, very much in Gentile churches. We'll discuss that a little little later, but this is called actual holiness and actual righteousness, not just imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness, as we see in the first five chapters of Romans, is there to act as a covering while we are understanding and learning how and what actual 
obedience and righteousness to God looks like in real time. Let's go on to verse 76. Now, this is Zacharias speaking to the baby, at, um, John the Baptist, at his christening. The baby's getting christened here. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way by spreading the knowledge amongst his people. Listen, that deliverance comes by having sins forgiven. That's the initial deliverance, getting rid of the shame, getting rid of the, of the guilt of sin. Through our God's most tender mercy, which causes the sunrise to visit us from heaven, to shine on those in darkness living in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the paths of peace. Now notice the, the, the terminology there, paths of peace. In other words, journeys. The Jews understood journeys and what the point of journeys were. We as Gentiles typically don't. Um, let me elaborate on that a little bit. We preach, a, as Gentiles, preach a very, very simple, simple, straightforward, what we think to be complete gospel, where we said, kind of picture a, a, um, an image here where we say, okay, in the beginning, we had uh, Adam and Eve um, on earth with God, all that blew up in Genesis uh, chapter 3 um, when Adam and Eve disobeyed the uh, protective rules of God. Uh, God sends uh, a, a Savior in the form of Jesus Christ. He, God becomes human in that extension. And then, boom, all that happens so we can, when we die, we get to go to a place called heaven. Okay? That's not the Hebrew understanding. The Hebrew understanding, and don't forget, is this book Gentile, written by Gentiles, or was it written by Jews? Was Jesus Jewish? Was Jesus called the king of the Jews? When we talk about one new man and Messiah in Ephesians chapter 2, and then in, uh, in Romans chapter 11, when we as Gentiles are grafted on to the root of Israel... Are we called in Ephesians chapter 2, the Gentiles, a solution or an answer to the mystery where, in essence, we, according to Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, we become members of the household of God. And at the same time, we become members of the commonwealth of Israel. This kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom is a much more Hebrew Jewish story than we give it credit for as Gentiles. And all of these experiences for to, that happened to the Jewish people, especially starting with the covenants uh, with the patriarchs, are intended for us down the road as beneficiaries to receive the light and the understanding and the uh, prototype of how to have a relationship with God through the covenant system. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Um, God wants to have a solution to bondage of sin to all of his children, Jewish children, Hebrew children, and Gentiles, 
as well. And so let me go back to now this concept of journeys. We Gentiles want to stop when we get initially saved, which is in essence the Passover, and say, well, we were told that once we got forgiveness of our sin through uh, applying the blood over our house and we would be free from the judgment of death, we preached the gospel that that's it. One and done. It's over. We don't talk about journeys. We think, well, we'll have a future journey, not a present journey. The future journey is going to be more like a rocket ship when we just, you know, fly out of here and go and live in the, in the ethos world and the ethereal world and the sweet by and by world and the heavenly world forever. We ain't coming back. The earth, we write it off as a lost cause. We say, well, God tried plan A, didn't work. Plan B, that didn't go well. So plan C, that's us. And God is portrayed as this, unfortunately, uncertain, experimental, we'll try this and see if it works. If it doesn't, we'll try something else. And if anything, we have to remember, I think it is in Hosea that says God doesn't change. And in Hebrews I think it is 13, talks about Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. We have been sold a bill of good. Journeys are required, and this isn't works. It's not religious works, okay? Um, There's a big difference between understanding what the eternal moral law of God was between right and wrong— Paul never, in any of his epistles, uh, intended to say that when he made the distinction between rituals and observances or and under, the, under the Torah, under the law of God, um, comp- contrasted with the element of the eternal, laurel, eternal moral law of God. He never contrasted faith versus works, thinking of morality, he was always referring to rituals and observances and extra things that the Pharisees had put on the, on the shoulders of the, of the Jews at the time to say, this is what you have to do uh, in order to be saved. Paul was always consistent in making that distinction. And so, unfortunately, if we don't understand the Jewish context, we as Gentiles coming in from the outside, not understanding the context of Jewish Hebrew authors, their culture, their language, their perspective, we just hand out Bibles telling people, this is a great book, it's make a major difference in your life, just don't read the first two-thirds, just read the last third that's the New Testament. And what we preach, unfortunately, is the reason Jesus came was pretty much just to forgive your sins so that you can go to heaven. That is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. It isn't. It's not even close. Is heaven included? Do I want to go to heaven? Of course. I love heaven, okay? 
but heaven is not our permanent home. We are part of a drama that involves our decisions day by day. Let's get more micro. Our decisions moment by moment, thought by thought. If you don't believe me, look at 2 Corinthians 10, 5. New Testament, take every thought captive to make them obey Christ, to make unto the obedience of Christ. We need to preach the gospel that the Father wants to get us out from bondage of sin, which is represented by living in a culture like Egypt. And we lost our Father in the fall in the garden. We didn't lose heaven. We lost our inheritance of earth. We didn't lose heaven. What God wants to do is restore what his original plan was in Genesis 1 and 2. He didn't go to plan B. Man was made to rule and reign and have dominion over the earth, not fallen angels. It was never made for them. It was made for us. And we have to realize that if the enemy can distract us by getting us on the wrong pathway, talk about journeys, on the wrong journey, on the wrong road, on the wrong pathway, thinking, all I have to do is say, you know, check a few boxes about what I mentally believe, and we make a formula out of initial salvation, and say, that's it. You get a ticket. You're just, you're, you got a ticket to ride. You just wait and for your rocket ship ride from the earthly realm up to the heavenly realm. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we are in bondage to Pharaoh, or if you will, Satan, by his power of sin over our lives. The gospel says very clearly why Jesus came. We took, look at those. We don't have time to go over them, but we had them in last week's show. He came to get us back with a relationship to our Father, our Father God. It's all over. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's everywhere. And also to restore our inheritance. Our inheritance is the earth. So, folks, understand this is a circular story of family reunion. It's not a great escape. It's not just get me out of Dodge. That's Greek linear thinking based on Gnosticism. Gnosticism's been around since the gospel time. John the Apostle and his his epistles had to address Gnosticism. So did Peter. He had to address Gnosticism, which basically said the material realm that God created and said everything, as he looked over everything in Genesis 1.31 that he made in the previous six days, he said everything that he made was very good. Not the Gnostic view of the Greeks to say, no, the material creation is evil. One is correct and one is wrong. And unfortunately, Gnosticism has crept into this Hebrew story, this Jewish story, of the gospel of the kingdom. We got to come to grips with that. So how do you get out from the bondage of Pharaoh? You leave Egypt. You don't rub the blood of the unblemished lamb on your doorposts and stay in Egypt and remain in Goshen under Pharaoh. You got to start a journey. You got to get out. You got to begin to walk away. Isn't that what's presented to us when we get the gospel of, of Jesus Christ presented to us? It says, hey, come out of the world. It's values. It's system. It's, it's bondage. It's slavery. Come out of that system 
And that's what we see in typology here. It's a type means there's nothing more than a sample or a preview, if you will, a shadow of something to come. And everything that happened to the Jews symbolically in and actually actually and symbolically is fulfilled in the New Testament. You got to see it in both. What what's one t- a type type if you will or a representation or a shadow in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled in reality in the New through Jesus Christ as our redeemer. We've got to change our perspective on this. If can you imagine if the Jews had remained behind and just told Moses, "We're not leaving." Yeah, we're not going. We already had Passover good enough for me. And I'm waiting for some future event where I'm going to fly out of here and go to heaven. Would that have made sense? Would Pharaoh have still retained power over um, the Jews? The Jews could say, hey, we, got, we didn't die in the 10th plague. The angel passed over us. We're just going to hang out here in the world. We're going to remain with Pharaoh, the symbol of Satan under his power. Because we have our leeks, we have our gardens over in Goshen, everything's fine. What could possibly go wrong? And here, Father God, through his agents, or agents, Moses and Aaron, is saying, look what I have for you. If you leave, get out of Egypt. Cancel your connection with it. Depart from it. Run away as fast as you can from it, because it will kill you. It will take you down. Forgiveness of sins is a good start, but that's not why Jesus came only, was to just forgive sins. He came, look at 1 John 3, 8, to do away with the works of the devil. That means remove not just the guilt and the shame when we get forgiven, but also be to have the power of sin be taken away from us. You know what that's called? Yeah, you can call it salvation, but I think the Jews have a better word in their Jewish Bible. It's called deliverance. You're being delivered from something if you disconnect from it. And that's why you have to take this journey. It's a requirement of the journey. You got to get going. You got to make travel plans. And what's really awesome is that uh, here, God even started by giving uh, the Hebrew children the booty, if you will, of of the uh, Egyptians. And they took their gold. They took their silver. They took their, you know, their wealth with them and said, see ya. And then God does an amazing miracle in the water of the Sinai. Because, again, Pharaoh, as a type or a symbol of Satan, wants to reassert his authority over the Hebrews to say, "Uh uh-uh, you are coming back because you are my slaves. And I'm going to bring you back by force with my army. I'm going to send them after you. But see, that's what Romans 6 is all about. That's why we use Romans 6 at water baptisms. It's basically, you're going under the water to basically symbol, symbolically die the death of Christ to sin, all right? Because he took the hit from us as an expiation, as an atonement of sin. And so we're dying to that life by leaving it. In other words, our journey, we're beginning our journey. Get out of Egypt. And when you go under the water in Romans 6 at a, at a baptism, you come up out of the water, okay, alive, and so there are three Jewish feasts that go with this. Passover is the initial deliverance. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, get the sin out. That's what leaven represents. And then the third one is the first fruits. That's the being born again, the born again experience. Sometimes that happens simultaneously with salvation. Sometimes it's separated. It depends. Every individual is unique. But you get salvation or deliverance, if you will. You get water baptized. 
That's the second feast, the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread. That's Romans chapter 6. You see it all through there. Being Every time we're talking about New Testament, it's fulfilling what already happened in the Old Testament. That's the connection between the two Testaments. One is a representation. The second one is a fulfillment. And Jesus told us that. When he, you, know, you look in uh, Matthew 5, 17, he says, hey, I didn't come to do away with the law, as, as, which is commonly taught in Gentile churches, not every church, but many. I didn't come to do away with the prophets. And he said in Matthew five seventeen, he said, I came to fulfill them. And when he said law, he's not talking about the perversion of the old law, the Torah, into becoming a bunch of rituals and observances that were imposed uh, by the Pharisees on the, they made it into a system of legalism. The law, when it's represented as the eternal moral law of God, Paul never had it uh, contrasted faith versus the law in that sense, ever. Major, major mistake that we Gentiles made because we don't understand the Hebrew context of the scripture. It's a Hebrew book, folks. Hebrew authors with a Hebrew Messiah called Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the one who saves us. HaMashiach, Ha is the Mashiach, is Messiah. We've got to combine these two halves, which are not really halves, but it's the two-thirds with the uh, Jewish Testament and one-third with the newest New Testament. The New Testament was written by Jews, with the maybe one exception of one Gentile named Luke. And there's a big debate on that. So let's say Luke was Hebrew. Now you've got 40 out of 40 authors of 66 books in the Bible. And yes, journeys are part and partial, parcel, I should say, of this gospel of the kingdom story. This isn't the gospel only of Jesus. It's not the gospel of the only of the Holy Spirit. It's not the gospel only of Father God. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Kingdom is the king's domain. It answers the question, who is king in our lives. Who is king? That's what the gospel of the kingdom answers. So we have to really take stock and understand context. Because if we don't understand, if you're reading a book and you don't understand the context of the background, of the history, of the, of the influence, of the thinking, of any of that, which unfortunately many of us in the Gentile camp are subject to because we just don't think that the Jewish Testament is relevant. And actually it's foundational. It's the foundation. You can't build a building without a foundation. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that foundation. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. But it's built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. So with that, we're going to discuss more about this journey away from Egypt and towards the promised land, but through the desert, which is, let's call it this, the university of God. We have to learn how and what are the ways of God. God bless you guys. Hope you have a bunch of simple truth moments this week. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, 
May God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. You ready? Okay. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.